Good morning uh, to our witnesses, colleagues, and guests. We're convening the subcommittee today to discuss the FY24 budget request for the Middle East and North Africa. We do this on a week in which we uh, may be getting a little bit more clarity into what our budget levels will be for the coming year, and we're looking forward as the authorizing committee, uh, working hand-in-hand -hand with the appropriations committee as we set budget numbers and investment levels uh, for the Middle East and North Africa. Um, this is, of course, a region where the bulk of our assistance dollars go. Since 1946, the Middle East and North Africa has received $372 billion of U.S. assistance. That's equivalent to the regions of Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, and Latin America combined. So it's worth asking if this investment, this pretty massive investment, has achieved its strategic objectives. And if not, why not? And here's a more pointed question. 70% of the aid for this region is security assistance. So what's been the return on that investment? For instance, do we have more reliable security partners today? Do we have more democracy in the region? Do we have less conflict? I don't know that any of the answers to those questions is a definitive yes. So it is possible that the primary outcome of much of this assistance has been to simply enable dictatorships that use the military more often for domestic repression than countering external threats. Now, I'm sure our witnesses will paint a slightly rosier picture, and there certainly are success stories. But one of the defenses of this investment often is that it's necessary to make sure that the energy product produced in the region continues to move to the United States, especially when we really need it in times of global crisis. But last summer, when the United States asked our partners in the Middle East to help ease the global energy price crisis caused by Russia's war in Ukraine, for the most part, our partners, the ones who were the recipients of these billions of dollars in foreign aid, turned their backs on us. And we should talk about that today, too. In addition to these big picture questions, it's worth drilling down into many of these countries that really matter and asking if our assistance levels make sense in 2024 the way it did when these relationships began many years ago. So does it make sense for Congress to automatically renew, again, basically the same exact amount of military aid to Egypt, the way we've done every single year since 1987, or do 60,000 political prisoners and little evidence of political reform argue for us to take a fresh look? Does it make sense for us to renew the same level of aid to Tunisia's military this year compared to last year, when that institution is regularly participating in military trials against the president's political opponents? As we continue to put billions of dollars into supporting the Iraqi military since ISIS took over broad swaths of the country in 2014, are we confident that that institution can stand up and defend their country today in ways that it couldn't do, obviously, 10 years ago today? But as I mentioned, let's be clear, there are targeted meaningful success stories where our aid has delivered outcomes that are good for us and good for our partners in the region. Just a couple quick examples, Lebanon, where our support for the Lebanese armed forces has been crucial in keeping Hezbollah at bay, keeping protesters protected as the country's economic and political crises deepen. 
Once a small, constantly threatened country whose very existence was always in peril, today Israel now boasts a strong military capable of defending itself from external attack. And in places like Yemen and Syria, humanitarian assistance just undoubtedly has saved tens of thousands of lives over the last decade. This hearing and a broader commitment that I think the full committee has to have to reviewing policy in this region, it's really important because I'd argue that too much of our assistance today is locked in decades-old assumptions about the region while the sand is shifting under our feet and the region is changing rapidly. So we convene the subcommittee today um, uh, to have this conversation. Uh, we look forward to our working with our colleagues on the Appropriations Committee in the coming weeks to draft the state and foreign operations portion of the FY24 Appropriations Act, and hopefully the answers we'll get to questions today will help in that effort. So with that, I will turn to the ranking member for his opening remarks. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for convening this hearing today uh, to review the State Department's budget request for the Middle East and North Africa. As we consider what the Department and USAID has requested, we must also consider the policies and realities that undergird the budget request. Seven out of ten dollars that the Department requests for the MENA region uh, are directed toward foreign military financing. Millions of dollars more in programs managed by the Department of Defense flow towards counterterrorism and train, advise, and equip missions. Finally, tens of billions of defense articles are sold to partner and allied governments every year in the region. This has been the trend not because security relationships are easier, nor is this the case because the United States is not willing or able to purposefully perform economic, humanitarian, and development programs across the MENA region. Quite the contrary, in fact. The United States' focus on security assistance has been and will likely continue to be the trend because this is a region of the world where hard power decisions still carry the most weight. Security for their people, economies, and interests is still the primary concern of every single partner and ally the United States has in the region. With security first on everyone's mind, we must confront the government's the government most in favor of undermining or destroying what fragile stability exists, Iran. I continue to be concerned by the Biden administration's position, or sometimes lack thereof, on stopping Iran. Since it's become clear Iran could not be stopped at the negotiating table, a realization that took far too long, Iran has not stood still even while we have. It's deepened its conventional military ties with Russia and China, improving its own conventional military capabilities and industrial base while fueling Putin's invasion of Ukraine. It's supported China's economy with discounted oil, sales the administration has repeatedly turned a blind eye towards. Its proxies in Gaza just launched more than 1,000 rockets at Israel, including towards Jerusalem. And just last week, it tested yet another ballistic missile capable of reaching Israel and beyond. In the face of these advances, I have yet to hear the administration articulate a clear policy towards the regime in Tehran that utilizes every tool in our unilateral and multilateral toolbox. This is not an Iran hearing, 
But these concerns and our discussion today is educated by the lack of answers the Senate received two weeks ago and because Iran's attempts to upset regional security manifest themselves in many of the decisions we make about policy and budgetary priorities. In an era of strategic competition, dollars, force posture, and prioritization of strategic assets are not fungible. The threat from Iran draws our focus and resourcing away from Europe and especially East Asia, the priority theater for the United States. Likewise, within the region, if our counterterrorism focus is directed towards Iran and its proxies, then we're required to pull our attention from groups like al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, in Yemen, or ISIS. In our hearing today, I hope to hear from our witnesses about how they, how they first and foremost, are positioning the department and USAID to tackle the question of security in the region. The decades-long quest, uh, the contest with China, remains our, our nation's highest geostrategic priority, even as our focus is drawn towards Europe in response to Putin's war in Ukraine. We still have a persistent uh, interest in the stability, security, and over time the progress of democracy and accountability in the Middle East and North Africa. The American people and our economic and national security are impacted by developments in the Middle East. It's both a space for competition with strategic rivals in Russia and China, but also a region where adversaries, allies, and partners are vying for influence, prosperity, and security. Both of these parallel tracks will be disturbed if we permit the further erosion of regional stability, an erosion driven by our lack of firm resolve and action in the face of increasingly complex threats. With that, I once again thank our witnesses for their appearance today. I look forward to our discussion. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Young. Let me introduce our witnesses and ask you to present us with testimony. Keep it to five minutes if you could, and we'll submit any additional remarks for the record. Um, neither of you really need an introduction, but we are joined today first by the Honorable Barbara Leaf, who is the Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs at the U.S. Department of State, and Ms. Jean Pryor, the Deputy Assistant Administrator for the Bureau of the Middle East at USAID. So welcome to you both. Um, I'll hand the floor to you, Ambassador Leaf. Uh, thank you, Chairman Murphy and Ranking Member Young, members of the subcommittee. Thank you for inviting me to testify today on the President's $7.57 billion FY 2024 budget request and our priorities in the Middle East and North Africa. The region remains, as both of you have noted, of vital importance to U.S. interests. President Biden has articulated a forward-looking approach to the region based on five elements, partnership, deterrence, diplomacy, regional integration, and values. We've made some significant progress. We launched the NEGA Forum and I2U2 on the back of the historic Abraham Accords, helped de-escalate Israeli-Palestinian tensions, advanced a UN-facilitated truce in Yemen, facilitated, negotiated an historic maritime boundary agreement between Israel and Lebanon, and helped secure the largest ever purchase of Boeing planes in Saudi Arabia. Our assiduous diplomacy has repaired rifts, and we now benefit from a region that, while still fragile, can itself undertake the work with us of stabilization and repair. We are as diplomatically engaged and committed to the region as we've ever been, doing the hard work to demonstrate our vision for the region's peace and prosperity and stability can deliver a more compelling future. Your support for this request will cement U.S. success. Our regional engagement begins with partnership. 
Building on our decades-long relationships and our track record, our partnership focus on solving shared problems and building shared prosperity and security. In an era of strategic competition, these partnerships are what set us apart to start with. Our FY 2024 request support, uh, request supports uh, partners like Israel, Jordan, Egypt, as well as Iraq, and creates the conditions that sustain our cooperation. Deterrence. Our unrivaled network of relationships and partnerships creates integrated deterrence to counter malign actors, including Iran. The President has been clear that he's committed to ensuring that Iran never acquires a nuclear weapon. Diplomacy is the best means to address the issue, coupled with deterring Iran's adventurism by building a deep coalition of partners with integrated defense capabilities and the willingness to hold Iran to account. Support for our partners' security enhances deterrence. The President's FY 2024 request includes $5.3 billion in foreign military financing as a result. Our commitment to Israel's security is ironclad. Consistent with our MOU for Israel, the request includes $3.3 billion to support Israel's security. On diplomacy, to build sustainable regional security, we must rely on diplomacy to build out coalitions that de-escalate conflict and work collectively. The $42.55 million request for Yemen, as, a, as a, an example, sustains our efforts that led to the key elements of the April 2022 truce, which continues to hold 14 months later. We remain focused on the enduring defeat of ISIS. The $97 million request for stabilization assistance in northeast Syria, particularly our effort on El Hol, ensures ISIS cannot leverage instability in Syria or recruit vulnerable displaced populations to reconstitute and threaten the United States. Together with our partners, we helped secure a ceasefire in Libya, shifting the focus to political negotiation. Our $16 million request supports Libya's eventual transition via national elections to a democratic, stable, and hopefully unified state. Regional integration. Through this request, we will continue to promote regional integration to unlock the, the region's potential for sustained and wide-ranging economic growth, which in itself will help provide greater stability and security. The Negev Forum is one example. It's designing and delivering the tangible benefits of regional integration. Along with the GCC, we've also developed a regional approach to Gulf security. These fora and more would benefit from the MENA Opportunity Fund, a new $90 million flexible funding mechanism we propose to take advantage of both progress or potential breakthroughs to advance regional <coughs> peace and integration. We're also cognizant that these efforts are no substitute for a negotiated settlement between Israelis and Palestinians. A two-state solution is the best way to ensure Israel's future as a Jewish democratic state living in peace alongside a viable, sovereign, democratic Palestinian state. Our request includes $309 million in economic and security assistance for the Palestinian people and support for people-to-people -people connections under the Middle East Partnership for Peace Act. Finally, values. We will keep our values at the center of our approach. We do this because it is who we are as Americans and because this also serves our interests in the region. We want the people of this region to know what we stand for and know what, that what we're offering is, in the long run, more likely to produce shared security, shared prosperity. Our request reflects our commitment to respond to changes that impact our values. That the request prioritizes support for the Tunisian people to address both economic stability and democratic openings should they emerge. Through the Middle East Partnership Initiative, MEPI, regional programs empower women in the workforce and embrace or enhance economic growth. 
Our policy to today is designed to build the sustainable integrated partnerships necessary to develop shared solutions to these challenges so that we can build the better future that we and our partners and indeed the people of this region seek. Thank you for the opportunity to testify and for your continued support for our efforts in the region and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you Chairman Murphy, Ranking Member Young and members of the committee. The past year has been marked by severe and increasing pressures on the countries of the Middle East and North Africa. Shortages in wheat supplies and food price increases worsened food security and strained fragile economies across the region. Earthquakes in Syria added to the devastation already wrought by Bashar al-Assad's brutal regime. Crises of governance and economic mismanagement continue to threaten stability in Lebanon and Tunisia, and violence increased significantly between Israelis and Palestinians. USAID has worked diligently to protect development progress while building forward momentum. The investments proposed in our fiscal year 2024 budget continue efforts to partner with the people of the region, build inclusive economic opportunities, and support a peaceful and democratic trajectory for this strategically important area of the world. Countries of the region face a wide variety of pressures from both inside and outside their borders. More than half of the population is under the age of 30. USAID is helping prepare these young people for the future. We develop curricula to improve reading and math skills in Lebanon's primary public schools, help more than four million Moroccan students read at grade level, and provided scholarships for deserving students across Egypt and Lebanon. However, as these young people transition into the workforce, opportunities lag. More than a quarter of young people are unemployed, and less than 20% of women in the region participate in the workforce. U.S. investments offer critical opportunities for young people and women. For example, in Lebanon, our investments in the private sector have benefited more than 20,000 enterprises, including more than 2,000 women-owned businesses. Regional challenges spill across borders. Since the beginning of Assad's war, more than 5.5 million Syrians have sought refuge in bordering countries. The conflict in Yemen has displaced more than 4.5 million people internally. And now the unfolding violence in Sudan has already prompted more than 150,000 people to flee into the MENA region. The People's Republic of China further complicates regional dynamics. USAID is assisting governments to understand the risks associated with PRC financing and technology. For example, in Jordan, USAID supports the government's ability to assess foreign investment risks to protect Jordanian sovereignty and avoid bad deals that would enable outside influences to affect infrastructure or financing decisions. The impact of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine on food security is another immediate pressure on the region. Thanks to Congress's generous supplemental funding, USAID has been able to slightly alleviate the pressures of dramatically decreased imports of critical foodstuffs such as wheat and cooking oil. However, given the region's outside size dependence on imports from Ukraine and Russia, addressing shortfalls in domestic production is essential. Improving agricultural production in the world's most water-scarce region requires consideration of climate change impacts in our work. The fiscal year 2024 request significantly increases funding for climate change adaptation. For example, in Jordan, groundwater is depleted twice as fast as it can be replenished. USAID is working with the government of Jordan to strengthen infrastructure and oversight of water management and incentivize water conservation. Although food security and water scarcity are shared risks for the region, these threats also offer opportunities for collaboration. Notably, USAID has seen expanded interest in Merck grants, particularly from Abraham Accord countries. Merck has received a record number of applications. 
Advancing the relationship between Israel and its neighbors is integral to the long-term prospects for the region. To build on this momentum, the fiscal year 2024 budget seeks continued funding for MEPA and includes flexibility to invest in emerging opportunities. For example, a portion of the 90 million requested for the Middle East and North Africa Opportunity Fund could be utilized if the negative form working groups yield tangible areas for investment. The request also increases support for the West Bank and Gaza by 40 million to advance public health, climate, economic growth, and other development priorities. U.S. assistance alone is not enough to address the region's challenges. Governments must protect human rights and take meaningful steps to improve governance and freedom of expression. However, through Congress and the American people's generosity, USAID has been able to not only provide some relief to the extreme pressures the region faces, but also to help shape meaningful paths to the future for the MENA region. Thank you for your support, and I look forward to your questions. Uh, thank you very much to both of you for your testimony and for your work. Um, uh, Ambassador Leaf, uh, let me s start with this question of how this budget r reflects and communicates American values in the region. Um, this budget cuts funding for democracy assistance in Tunisia while leaving support for the military largely unchanged. It essentially carries on business as usual with respect to the $1.3 billion that Egypt gets with some minimal conditions attached to it. Uh, makes no real fundamental change in our relationship with Gulf countries, despite their deepening commitment to political repression. Um, I worry that this budget doesn't communicate right, the values that we share in that it doesn't make any significant changes to the way in which we flow dollars to countries that either have worsening human rights records, like Tunisia, or countries that have shown no meaningful commitment to change, like Egypt, despite the fact that we attach occasional conditionalities on top of the dollars year after year. Um, am I wrong? Senator, let me start with Tunisia, which is one of the uh, toughest nuts to crack, as it were, in terms of just what you've laid out, this, this complex of issues, the values that we, uh, that, that we uphold, that we intend to uphold both through our assistance and also through our diplomatic work, side by side with uh, real security concerns that we, and, and U.S. national security interests that we address through uh, FMS uh, and, and security assistance more broadly. Um, I take this back to the summer, of course, of 2021. So it has been a two-year process of adjusting downward uh, uh, our, our assistance to government, uh, Tunisian government authorities, and calibrating, scoping downward even our security assistance. Let me leave that aside for a moment. Um, human rights work is done is is uh, done through a variety of other buckets in terms of programming, so it's not been zeroed out as, as part of a, 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 an approach writ large by the department. I can tell you that our advocacy is unstinting, is unflagging, and it's made for quite a bit of friction, frankly, in the relationship that we have with the government of Tunisia, but that's as it has to be. We've seen this steady, relentless uh, closing of civil space, civil society space, pressure on individual activists, uh, individual politicians, including the aging leader of Anahda, um, the, uh, the, the clamor against the press, the clamor against Western and, and other uh, diplomatic 
uh, missions. It's, it's a really fraught environment, but our advocacy is relentless publicly and privately. Um, we have scoped downward the security assistance uh, to a degree that we think adequately addresses uh, enduring security interests that we have there. Uh, literally, operationally, the security of our own diplomatic personnel, but more broadly, uh, the effort that we want to see the Tunisian Armed Forces and law enforcement agencies continue to do their missions in terms of maritime, border security, counterterrorism work. Um, so, so I understand that. Yes. The military is participating in President Saeed's campaign of repression. They're holding military tribunals against his political opponents. They were there at the parliament denying entry. I understand there are these limited important missions that the military perform that are commensurate to U.S. national security interests. The question is, is the price for that worth it when our funding of a military that is engaged in this kind of political repression signals um, a complicity in, in, with the Saeed regime. So I would, I would say the following, Senator. We judge the military, the armed forces, as largely apolitical. And that is, that is I, unquestionably a, a benefit or a rather a, a, a byproduct of our long relationship with them. We don't, uh, of course, we've made it very clear and we've advocated against uh, the use of military tribunals. Uh, to, uh, to judge civilians. Uh, I understand that civilian judges are essentially delegated over those courts. It is a tactic of intimidation, frankly. We have every reason to think that the armed forces themselves find this distasteful. But we judge them as largely apolitical in this, in this uh, very difficult envir environment, and we do have abiding interests that extend in terms of Tunisia's place, on the eastern uh, you know, edge of NATO and its ability to do its tasks. Um, I don't judge them to be apolitical. Um, I do not think that they have fashioned themselves in a way that would communicate um, that to the Tunisian people. Uh, and I'm just as bothered about um, the, the lack of commitment that we've made to civil society. I understand that's tough because you've got to make sure that the money gets to the right places, but I continue to look forward to working with the administration on this committee and on the Appropriations Committee to try to get this right. And I guess my focus has been so laser-like on Tunisia because I I'm kind of giving up that we're going to be able to dramatically change our assistance to Saudi Arabia or to Egypt in a way that telegraphs to the world and to the region that we care in the way that we spend money on human rights. Tunisia is a place that has slid away from democratic norms very, very fast. Um, and I think a reorientation of our policy there would send an important signal beyond Tunisia um, that um, your partnership with us is dependent on your commitment to continuing uh, to, to, to head your democracy and your civil protections in the right direction. Um, I'm well beyond my time, so I'll turn it over to Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, Assistant Secretary Leaf, I, I'd like to begin with the Iran-Saudi Arabia uh, agreement. Um, surprised, I, I, I think all of us, uh, that it, it took place the way it did, uh, brokered by China, I think where China can play a constructive role, and I believe this is the position of, of, of the administration, uh, certainly I, I, I've heard as much, I think, from the uh, spokesperson uh, at the State Department that uh, 
We want to encourage China to do positive things as opposed to negative things around the world. I also am hopeful uh, that this agreement moving forward will continue to reduce tensions in the region. I think that's the hope uh, and um, uh, a hope that's been articulated by, by the Secretary as well. I'm going to ask you about how we measure uh, progress uh, towards monitoring, you know, whether or not this agreement's uh, effective moving forward and how the agreement's altered our diplomatic posture. Before I get into those matters, um, let's step back. What, what made the role of China amenable to both parties? Thanks very much for that question, Senator. It's a, it's a fascinating one, and it's one that, um, as you say, the, the the revelation on March 10th of this detente, and that's what I would I would really define this as. It's a detente. It's not a, a reconciliation, a, a big rapprochement, uh, or a full normalization. Um, but it did surprise a lot of people. It did not entirely surprise us because we have been. In a, in a constant dialogue with the Saudis of the, over the course of two years, uh, supporting them in their quest to find some modus vivendi to get using one tool, diplomatic engagement, uh, not putting down all the other uh, harder tools um, that we use uh, bilaterally or collectively, but one tool, direct engagement with Tehran to try to get uh, a mitigation of the national security threats that Iran has posed directly and through its proxies, principally through uh, the Houthi, but not only uh, uh, with, with direct attacks on Saudi soil. More recently, so this has been an effort that has been ongoing through the good offices of, of the government of Iraq and the government of, of uh, Oman. Uh, Saudi Arabia was consistently frustrated in its quest to get the uh, Iranians to acknowledge their role in destabilizing uh, Yemen and in essentially training and equipping uh, with lethal support uh, the Houthis in such a way that they could just launch at will complex attacks on Saudi soil. More recently, the Saudis were really determined since last fall to use a bilateral channel that it, they had opened up to drive the, to an end of their engagement in the Yemen conflict and indeed to drive to an end of the conflict itself. They did not want the Iranians to scupper that. So this agreement I would stipulate is, was not brokered by the Chinese, they hosted it. The Iranians and the Saudis uh, did all of the agreements and the discussions themselves. What do they want out of it? It's in the first instance, as I say, focused on Yemen. How will we help them measure it? Uh, partly through the work that we do every day on the high seas, which is interdicting and monitoring, and not just monitoring, but interdicting flows of weaponry. Um, but it is a detente that the Saudis drove for, uh, for a wider calm in the region so that they could pursue uh, their socioeconomic uh, modernization project. Well, you know how it looks. Yes, it I do. It looks like we've, we've diplomatically overplayed our hand vis-a-vis -vis the Saudis and, and pressing them to come into positions of, of better behavior on various fronts, like human rights. Uh, and <clears throat> they're hedging their, their geopolitical bets. They're, they're extending an arm of, if not friendship, certainly partnership with the Chinese uh, and that's, that's the perception. So diplomatically, um, 
I could, I, beyond the hope that this reduces tensions moving forward, and, and it is a, a, uh, a hope that I and others harbor, uh, it, it seems as though diplomatically it's, it's a bit of a, it's a hit, so to speak. But I'll let you respond to that reflection. Sure. Senator, the Chinese obviously have established a relationship with Iran that the U.S. does not have. And so in a sense, the Chinese are on a hook to help police Iranian actions. Uh, that's also the way um, many people saw it in the region and, and what the Saudis, frankly, hope uh, out of it. I would say the Saudis are very clear-eyed about the prospects for getting a, a sudden change in Iranian behavior, a change that would alter four decades of their behavior in the region. But they want to get at it through one tool. And they want a general calming in the region. Uh, and um, you know that is to everybody's good. They did not go into this because we pressured them. This was a sovereign decision on their own. Just, just very briefly, because I, I've got other colleagues who, who want to ask questions. Uh, how how is this in your mind altered our our and how will it alter our diplomatic posture uh, of of the department in the region? It won't. Uh, it doesn't alter our posture. I mean, I this is something. This is a a, a detente agreement that may have a relaxing uh, effect on the region, maybe short lived. It does, not, uh, it does not alter our own very robust engagement with all of our Gulf partners, including the Saudis. Senator Cardin. Well, let me thank both of you. Uh, I'm going to follow up on the chairman's point on U.S. values. Both of you have said that our foreign policy uh, and your, uh, our aid needs to be wrapped in our values and to protect human rights. The chairman, I think, raised a very valid point of whether that's true in Tunisia. I'm going to, uh, he sort of wanted to give up on Egypt and Saudi Arabia. I'm not. I'm not giving up. Okay. But, so let me talk about Egypt first. Because we've had, it looks like a running battle with the administration on Egypt, on conditionality of aid. Last year, there was a disagreement between the administration and those of us in Congress on meeting the conditions of conditionality. Uh, but one thing is clear, there was some progress made. 500 prisoners were released. But at the same time, 750 were detained. So the net was actually more political prisoners uh, than the year before. But conditionality brought this to the attention can you explain to me that if we are wrapping our foreign policy in our values, why you are not suggesting conditionality in, in our assistance to Egypt? Senator, we, we abide by the conditions, obviously, set by the Congress. But our going in proposition is that we seek unconditioned aid so that we can use it with the greatest flexibility. I won't disagree with, with what you cited in terms of, of the numbers of Can I just challenge that for one moment? You know, one of the advantages of our system of government, separation of branches, that we can use the power of both branches working together for the same objectives. So if your objective is for us to advance our values, why would you put us in a difficult position when we disagreed last year on some of these issues, you said we worked together, we really did not. Why did you not seek help from Congress uh, in regards to the budget you submitted? 
So, Senator, I would just say that we we do each have our separate roles. I think the, the work that the Congress does in this space sends a powerful signal to the Egyptian government. Um, but uh, we seek aid, generally speaking, across the board. We seek assistance that is uh, uh, unconditioned, that we can use flexibly. But um, we have abided by the conditions that Congress has set. We've evaluated each year carefully, and uh, the, the Secretary has carefully considered uh, the ledger, the record, in making his decisions about whether to grant a waiver or not. So I think we have our respective roles which actually work in, in, in synchronicity. So let me move to the, the second point, and that is your request for funding to try to promote more regional cooperation. Uh, the funding sources, you mentioned several. And you also, uh, Spryer mentioned the Abraham Accords. Uh, tell me directly where there is funding here to advance the expansion of the Abraham Accord type arrangements. Uh, there has been some progress made in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Certainly they're not an Abraham Accord country. We recognize that. There's been some progress made there. Where in this budget do we see your priorities of expanding normalization between countries in the region with Israel? Well, I would offer the following. Part of, a, a large part of our activities are in the diplomatic space, which just go to our normal um, operating budget. And that's what we've used over the course of two years to uh, construct the frameworks that we have. Well, you're a former ambassador to UAE. You know that UAE's interest in normalizing with Israel it's complicated, but the economics is certainly a large part of that. Where's the economics in your budget to expand the Abraham Accords? Well, I don't think, I, I, what I'm saying is, I, you know, if, if the Congress of, uh, uh, accords us uh, the, oppor the opportunity fund, I think we'll draw on that for seed money for things. But at, we're at the starting point in these structures. We're at the starting point in some of the things that we have uh, negotiated. Secretary Kerry, uh, Special Presidential Envoy Kerry, um, negotiated and helped design this Project Prosperity, for instance, which doesn't involve us putting money on the, on the table, but helped design a project that is UAE funding to Jordan to set up solar plants, providing uh, electricity to Israel, which in turn provides much needed water to Jordan. And it's things like that that don't require direct money from us, but we will identify uh, such opportunities along the way. We have a lot sort of going on in the diplomatic space that isn't yet visible frankly. Well, I, I, I just want to associate myself with the chairman. It, to me, is important that we're visible with showing that our foreign policy is based upon our values. And I think we could have put a much brighter spotlight on human rights and on our values on these areas than I see in, in the budget you submitted. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. The Biden foreign policy, unfortunately, has made America less safe in every region of the world. But there is no region of the world where it has proven a bigger disaster than the Middle East. In every country in the Middle East, America's position is worse today than it was two years ago. Ms. Leaf, I want to focus in particular on Israel and the PLO. The United States Congress has determined that the Palestine Liberation Organization and its affiliates are a terrorist organization and a threat 
to the interest of the United States. It's written in the United States law, 22 U.S. Code, Chapter 61. Do you agree with that assessment? So you, you agree, yes, you agree with Congress's assessment that the PLO is a terrorist organization? Yes. Congress, in light of that determination, has imposed multiple sanctions on the PLO. One set of sanctions prohibits the president from granting visas to PLO leaders to enter the United States. Another prohibits Americans from doing business with them. In October, the administration waived some of those sanctions and went to the Treasury Department to circumvent others. You did that specifically to bring the Secretary General of the PLO to Washington. You held press briefings for him with top State Department officials. Why did you do that? Why did you bring a terrorist leader to the United States? Uh, Senator, we have the authority uh, to waive uh, in the national interest. I, I didn't ask did if you so. had the authority to waive. I said, we why brought, you we, we brought uh, the delegation here to the United States to have uh, discussions uh, that would go to a number of interests that we have that go to Israel's security, frankly. So you were not concerned with the fact that the PLO has been determined to be a terrorist organization. You were not concerned with the fact that you were violating congressional determinations that we should not bring terrorist leaders to Washington. Instead, you sought a specific waiver. And your justification, your public justification, which you gave a variant of that right now, is, is that you think we should engage in ter with terrorists. The problem, Ms. Leaf, is that your strategy is failing, and it's failing catastrophically. On Friday, you sent a report to Congress officially certifying that the Palestinian Authority and the PLO, and I'm going to quote, that they have not met legal requirements for, quote, terminating payments for acts of terrorism against Israeli and U.S. citizens. Now, publicly, when the administration defends engaging with terrorists, you claim things are going well. But when you file a statutorily mandated report with Congress, you admit the PLO is continuing what are called pay-to-slay payments. They are paying for terrorists to murder Americans and to murder Israelis. And nonetheless, this administration is bringing those terrorist leaders to Washington, is bringing them to cocktail parties to wine and dine, political leaders in the administration, and is also funneling, last year, the Biden administration, USAID said, USAID, this is another quote, has invested $150 million this past year to empower Palestinians to build thriving and resilient communities in violation of at least the spirit, if not the letter, of the Taylor Force Act. It, why, given that you have now certified to Congress that the PLO is continuing to pay terrorists to murder Americans and murder Israelis, why is the administration sending $150 million to them? So I'll let my uh, colleague answer that in a moment, but I would like to get to the, the question you ask that goes to the issue of both the engagement here in Washington as well as the regular engagements that we have with the PA, uh, with PA officials. Uh, we are working to bring pay to slay to an end, period. Have you succeeded? Not yet. We are working to do so. And you're still sending them money? We are working to do so. Are you still sending them money? We do not 
We do not provide assistance to the Palestinian Authority. Does USAID? Have, does the administration? No. Please. Your testimony is, is the USAID does not provide money to the PLO? We do not. Uh, we abhor prisoner payments, and we have raised these concerns repeatedly to the Palestinian leadership. We are fully compliant, compliant with the Taylor Force Act. No money goes to the Palestinian Authority. So who have you given the $150 million to? Um, to support the Palestinian. Who, who got the money? Not to support so the Palestinian. Example, like, who Palestinian, specifically deposited the check? For example, Palestinian civil society organizations to hold the Palestinian Authority accountable. So and is it your testimony that none, none of the groups that you have sent that money to are in any way affiliated with the PLO or other terrorist organizations that are paying to murder Americans and Israelis? Is that your testimony of this committee? We work hard to put in place a series of risk mitigation is, measures is, to is, prevent the diversion of assistance to terrorists and terrorist organizations uh, through partner vetting. Okay, I'm going to try one more time. Is it your testimony that the recipients of that money have no affiliation with terrorist groups that are based, paying to murder Americans and Israelis. Based on the results of our vetting, and when we get allegations that suggest otherwise, we investigate them carefully and take action as needed. Thank you. Senator Sheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for being here and for your testimony. Um, Assistant Secretary Leaf, I'd like to begin with you. Um, Chairman Murphy mentioned Lebanon in his opening statement, and I think most of us watching the crises, the multiple crises in Lebanon, believe it's teetering on being a failed state. And I wonder if, if there, is, there are more in the way of incentives and disincentives that we can and should be doing to address what's happening in Lebanon right now. So can you speak to that? I, I would say the one um, exception to that is the LAF, which is the one institution that seems to be functioning in Lebanon. So I would hope that we are continuing to support um, their efforts. Thank you, Senator. Uh, well, you're absolutely right that uh, the state of Lebanon, uh, Lebanese society is in a terrible state at this point. And it was precisely to avoid uh, the prospect, which seemed quite real in 2021, and still seems, feels very real as a prospect, to avoid the prospect of state collapse. So we set about a whole series of efforts, well beyond humanitarian assistance, but that is an important piece of this, of course, to, to, uh, to buck up the resiliency of the population. But to your point, um, we've used a variety of tools. We've used in-kind assistance to the LAF and the ISF, which, as you say, are two critical state institutions, national institutions, cross a, across a confessional, which still have a high degree of public confidence and support. And they're not perhaps the last leg standing on this, on this very shaky table, but, but it's getting that way. So we do regard the direct salary support that, um, that Congress has been generous enough to approve to be critical to that task of keeping them able to do not only their security um, uh, tasks, but all the multiplicity of tasks that have been heaped upon them as this crisis has deepened. I will let Jeannie talk about the, the array of programs we have uh, underway, but I will just say one oh, other thing. Rather, oh, rather than programs that we have underway, I appreciate uh -huh. that we're doing a number of things to address humanitarian situation, the humanitarian situation. What I want to know is, is there more that we can be doing that we think might move um, 
move the, the dime. Lebanese, yeah. Yes, the Lebanese government. Uh, That's I mean, what I want to know. It's, it's a source of enormous frustration, I can tell you. And we are uh, working collaboratively with several regional partners, European partners, to push the Lebanese parliament to do its job. The elected representatives of the Lebanese people have failed to do their jobs. The Speaker of the Parliament has failed to hold a session since January to allow members to uh, put candidates forward for the presidency, uh, to vote on them up or down, and to get to a choice, to get to elect a president who will then appoint. Well, and so again, should we be thinking about sanctioning some of these we players? Are looking, we are looking at because those Because Yes, we are. There is a big Lebanese diaspora, I happen to know, I'm married to one, um, in the United States who I think could be helpful in pushing, but as long as we continue to allow this kind of activity to continue, it's hard to get people to, to provide the kind of pressure from the United States that they need. So we, I, I want to know what else we can do. Okay, well, I, I can assure you, Senator, we are engaging with the diaspora. I meet regularly with members of the Lebanese parliament who come through town. I put heat on them. Um, I just heard from a senior member of the parliament yesterday uh, asking for some further thoughts. I gave them thoughts when they left. I gave them some more thoughts. Uh, we have other partner governments doing the same thing. It's a collective effort. Um, well, I hope that we might think about what else we can do because what we're doing so far doesn't seem to be working very well. I, I want to move on to Al Hole because you mentioned that um, Assistant Secretary Leaf in your opening comments and the De National Democracy Institute, NDI, is releasing a report um, on the governance at Al Hole, which finds that camp management and local institutions need urgent governance-related assistance to facilitate the orderly and safe return of Syrians to communities in northeast Syria. Certainly that's true of many of the other detainees as well. Um, CENTCOM Commander Carrilla has made a number of public statements about his concerns about what's happening in the camp and the potential for terrorist for us to be um, really cultivating a whole nother round of terrorists at that camp. And so, uh, again, I wonder what specifically we're doing to facilitate proper governance at the camp. So we are working closely with uh, the self-administration and the SDF um, to, encourage, and the, to encourage countries to take back their citizens. Most of the residents of Al Hol are women and children. And every day those children remain is another chance for them to get radicalized. Um, there has been progress in third country nationals returning home. And most notably, the largest percentage of the population in the camp are Iraqis. And the Iraqi government has begun to brought home some of the families that are in Al Hol. We are working closely with the State Department to make sure that those families are reintegrated back into their communities of origin successfully. We are also looking at plans for how we can uh, reintegrate Syrians in Al Hol and have them return home to their communities of origin. Between t those two groups, those are the overwhelming majority of the population in the camp. Um, in February, Senator Graham and I, along with the chair and ranking member of this committee, reintroduced the Syria Detainee and Displaced Persons Act to empower a senior coordinator to synchronize a whole of government effort to address the growing crises in the camps in Syria. The role is currently filled by the coordinator for counterterrorism, which is a position that 
remains unfilled due largely to the obstruction of members of this committee. So I would urge the chair and ranking member to encourage the full committee to block the hold on that position and to move this legislation in a way that's gonna be critical if we're gonna address what needs to happen in that camp. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Sheen. Joining our subcommittee today, Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, uh, thank you, Chairman Murphy, and uh, thank you both for your testimony and your service. Um, and I wanna associate myself with the comments the chairman made in his opening. Um, Ambassador Leaf, I have a question regarding our efforts to secure accountability uh, in the case of the shooting death of Shireen Abu Akhle. As you know, she's an American citizen. She's a journalist. The president and others have spoken out strongly about the importance of protecting journalists, especially in conflict zones. Uh, your deputy testified uh, in front of this committee on, on May 4th, um, Yael Lambert, she said, uh, in response to a question I asked, I can tell you that we continue to underscore at the level of the Secretary of State the importance of accountability in her killing and we will continue to do so. Uh, do you endorse and support that statement? I do. As you probably know, I've been trying for weeks and weeks now uh, to get a hold of the updated summation report uh, done by the General Fenzel, the USSSC, regarding his, the shooting death of uh, uh, Shireen Abu Akhle. I just want to tell you I've run out of patience. Um, I expect to be able to view the report um, wherever you want, in a classified setting, by Friday. Uh, and uh, I will otherwise use whatever powers I have here uh, in ways that I have never done before. Uh, I'm a dear friend of the Foreign Service, but I can tell you I'm at the end of my rope in terms of a simple request for a report. I understand, Senator, and I do apologize for the delay. And uh, we expect to bring uh, that report forth shortly to uh, the committee for your viewing. I do apologize. Well, I, I appreciate that, Madam Ambassador. I know, I know how much you've, you've worked on these issues. Let, let me ask you um, about a recent operation that was conducted in the West Bank uh, by an Israeli border security uh, unit that falls under the authority of the Minister of Security, uh, Ben Gavir, who, as you know, has responsibility for the national uh, police and border security. First, I think it's uh, worth reminding people about Ben Gavir and his history. Uh, as I'm sure you know, he was previously convicted by an Israeli court for racist incitement against Palestinian Arabs and for supporting the Jewish, suprem Jewish supremacist Kahanist terror organization, uh, which for some time had been designated as a terrorist organization by the United States government. Uh, he now heads a far-right party um, called Jewish Power, which is the ideological successor to Kahani's party. Uh, and he's now a member of the Netanyahu cabinet, a very far-right uh, cabinet. Uh, he recently participated in the flag march through the old city of Jerusalem. Uh, where marchers chanted, quote, death to Arabs. You can view it on video. Uh, he, days later, uh, visited the Temple Mount, El-Haram El-Sharif, uh, where he declared, quote, we are in charge here in Jerusalem and all of the land of Israel, unquote. A statement uh, where the, the State Department uh, expressed its uh, concern with, quote, the provocative visit and the accompanied inflammatory rhetoric, unquote. 
So this is the individual who is the Minister of Security. Uh, and uh, I wanted to ask you if you saw this piece that appeared in the, the Washington Post just the other day. Headline, Israeli agents conducted raid against militants in civilian area killing a child. Did you see that, Madam Ambassador? Okay. So they point out uh, in this very detailed article uh, where they examined video uh, evidence um, that an innocent 14-year-old boy was killed in the crossfire in a raid that was part of an extrajudicial killing. Um, the Washington Post shared its findings with five experts in international law, all of whom said that the deadly raid appeared to violate the prohibition on extrajudicial killings. That's a quote a finding from the article. So my question to you is, as you know, the Leahy Law uh, prohibits the provision of U.S. security assistance to foreign security force units where there's credible information that the unit has committed a gross violation of human rights, uh, which includes extrajudicial killings. Uh, have you, has the State Department vetted this unit that is the subject of this Washington Post report? I don't know offhand, but I'll get you an answer, Senator. If you could, and when you do, if you could also give me a list of all the other units uh, that have been vetted. Uh, Absolutely. Both those under the control and command of Ben Gavir, uh, but also those um, other, other units um, in, the, in the military. Um, and I appreciate that and look forward to your response. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Van Hollen. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ms. Pryor, uh, U.S. aid to the region is pretty heavily focused on foreign military sales, but it's the region's young population, which is a very dynamic one that is going to determine the future of the region. Talk a little bit about the development goals the U.S. is focused on uh, in this region, and particularly with respect to programs that might affect young people. Thank you. Yes, we are deeply concerned that half the population of the region is under the age of 30. So they could be a destructive force or a great force for change. So we are focusing on the latter. We are, are doing extensive work in getting scholarships to needy students in the region, um, developing their skills to enable them to be able to get jobs. And then also there is a real entrepreneurial spirit amongst youth in the region. I, I had the opportunity last fall in Iraq to visit young people who are not, not waiting on the public sector. They are going out and starting their own businesses. And so we are working hard to try and make sure that they get the technical assistance and know-how in setting up a business and then also access to financing to make their dreams a reality. Also, we are supporting civil society, and youth are actively engaged in civil society throughout the region, again, you know, to help them advocate for change within their own countries. Thank you. Uh, Secretary Leaf, let me ask you this. Um, the, the President's budget makes a $271 million request for partnerships with Iraq. Uh, and that puts Iraq on par with some of our closest global partners. Together with the ranking member, Senator Young, and many others, Senator Murphy, we have advocated for the repeal of the Iraq war authorizations on the grounds that a partner is not an enemy. And we're now in a position, thank goodness, I mean, it's a, it's a tribute to both U.S. investment and Iraqi magnanimity. We're, we're a partner, um, and Iraq can play really, is playing and can continue to play a really 
important role in the region. If you could talk about the strategic goal for this particular request and the partnership, the security partnership we have with Iraq, please. Certainly, Senator, it's a great question and I will just say I've been to Iraq uh, twice in the last six or seven months and even in that period, I've seen um, some real dynamic change, change to the good, much like uh, Jeannie discussed, this sort of uh, economic vitality for this first time is really evident in that country. And I've been going to Iraq since 2010. Strategically, uh, what I would say is our approach to Iraq is, um, Lena Romanowski, our, our brilliant ambassador out there, uh, puts it as a, it's a 360 degree relationship. It's no longer the singular security CT mill-mill uh, -mil relationship, it's, it's, it's full spectrum. I also like to think of another analogy, which is that Iraq is a keystone state. It's a keystone in the arch of regional security and stability. So what is good within Iraq in terms of its achievement of security, stability, and, and greater and greater sovereignty, internal and external, what's good for Iraq then becomes good for uh, certainly the near neighborhood, but for the broader region. So our FMF uh, relationship is solid and strong and I think over the course of time has brought some really significant results to the point that we are far away from the days of 2014 when we saw that just calamitous uh, collapse of uh, parts of the, of the Iraqi security forces in, 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 the, in the face of waves of ISIS fighters. We're a long way from that to the point where the Iraqi Air Force can itself do counter ISIS missions uh, the Iraqi security forces can hold territory that they've cleared of ISIS fighters. Uh, they're a more professional force. They're increasingly capable. Um, but it, we're in it for the long game, uh, both on the sort of civilian economic uh, side of things and then in terms of our security assistance. And it's a complex partnership, I will say, and things don't change uh, under just one uh, uh, prime minister or one government, but we're seeing Iraq lean into the regional integration, which is also a hallmark of our approach, is to encourage in both directions the neighborhood to embrace Iraq and Iraq to embrace the neighborhood. Th thank you for that. And just two comments uh, as I close. Um, we've now gone more than two years without Senate-confirmed counterterrorism coordinator, um, even as terrorism networks grow and expand around the globe. And they remain a threat not only to our partners, but to the United States, to Israel, many other nations. The nominee for the position, the Biden administration's nominee, Elizabeth Richard, is a highly qualified FSO. This committee has cleared her twice, once in the 117th Congress and now again in the 118th, and I would really hope we could get her confirmed on the floor because this is a, a billet that is very important. And then lastly, if I could just say to you, um, Secretary Leaf, I'm really worried about Hezbollah's networks in Latin America. I'm the chair of the Americas subcommittee. So I spend a lot of time in the Americas, but as I do, I hear more and more and more about activities of Hezbollah and other Middle East-based uh, organizations, terrorist organizations, and they're getting, uh, their level of activity in the Americas is picking up. So I would just encourage coordination between you know, your section and, and, um, and Secretary Nick, uh, Assistant Secretary Nichols. Uh, I will certainly do so. Great, thank you. I yield back, Mr. Chair. Uh, thank you, Senator Kane. Uh, the ranking member and I will ask a few final questions in a short second round. I'll turn it over to Senator Young to start. Uh, thank you, Chairman. I'd, I'd like to ask a, a couple of questions about Yemen, since I, I have you both here. Uh, probably not a surprise for those uh, repeat visitors. Um, 
So the United States, we've, we've been an extensive provider of humanitarian assistance uh, amidst the conflicts in, in Yemen in, in recent years. If a stable and verifiable peace agreement were to manifest itself in Yemen, what immediate steps is the department and USAID preparing to take to get a potential new era of Yemen's history off to the right start? Thank you, Senator. Um, I'll speak first to the diplomatic efforts, and then I'll ask Jeannie to jump in on the assistance side. You know, uh, this has been a two-plus-year, almost two-and-a-half-year quest. Um, when we, when we, the administration took office, of course, there was a raging war. There were myriad attacks every day on Saudi Arabia and, and eventually on, on the UAE as well, coming from, uh, from the Houthi. Uh, and these were complex attacks uh, that were almost impossible to defend against, given you know the use of drones and and uh, rockets and missiles and so forth, um, with a lot of hard work, diplomatic work, um, with uh, coupled with the UN envoy, the Saudis and so forth, we were able to collectively drive to a truce in April of last year, which is not miraculously, but has held through hard hard work, principally by the Saudis and uh, buttressed by the work of, of the Omanis, uh, the UAE to some degree, but of course our own great envoy, Tim Lenderking, um, our mission in the field. So uh, the Saudis are conceivably in the end game of their discussions to take their discussions with their negotiations with the Houthi from this bilateral cha uh, channel to flip it to the UN. Uh, the UN envoy, Hans Gudrun, was here uh, last week uh, we had intensive consultations with him. He is charting out the work that he will do on the other side. Uh, I know, uh, having spoken to um, one of our uh, Gulf partners, they are eager to host these talks that would be Yemeni, Yemeni talks. Uh, but we, uh, suffice to say, we are, our sleeves are already rolled up, ready to plunge in, and this would be UN-mediated, but US-assisted, and we'd bring in other uh, partners as needed. Ms. Pryor? So, you know, un unfortunately, uh, we were, had to pull out of our assistance out of the North because we were no longer able to assure that assistance could, would not be diverted to terrorist organizations. So if there were a durable peace agreement, one of the first things that we would do, and this is where uh, the opportunity fund that we requested would be invaluable to us, is we would want to move back into the North to help those communities recover from conflict. So the money would be used uh, to, to uh, help those communities that were otherwise engaged in, in terrorist activities or, or uh, threatening activities towards their neighbors uh, begin economic activity and sustain themselves. Uh, maybe you could tease we, out what, what you intend to use them for. So we would need to be mindful, and we do use partner vetting in Yemen because we would not still want our assistance to go to any terrorist or terrorist organizations in the north. But for example, we could help women set up small businesses, um, ensure there's primary health care for children. Those are just a couple of examples. I would also add, Senator Young, that it would be our full expectation, and, 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 and not just expectation, we, we know this would be the case, we would turn to our GCC partners for uh, their stabilization and uh, development assistance as well. Okay, if, if you could 
continue to keep me posted, especially if we see a longer-term agreement being struck in this area about the sort of preparations you're taking, and as importantly, the assistance you might require from the Hill. Uh, I'd, I'd really appreciate that. Chairman? Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Senator Young. Um, two final questions from uh, me. Um, Fred Weary, who knows more about Libya than um, most anybody else in this town, has an interesting piece from last month in Foreign Policy, and it's titled, Why Isn't the U.S. in Libya? Subtitled, Outside Powers Take a Growing Interest in This Oil-Rich African State, Where the U.S. Embassy Has Been Closed Since 2014. Um, Ambassador Leaf, the budget request includes a, a request for a 6.6% increase in worldwide security protection dollars um, for additional local guard forces and the potential resumption of a diplomatic presence inside Libya. You know, obviously we've been trying to supplement from Tunisia our um, our activities and, and diplomatic efforts in Libya, but it does seem time that we uh, bring back a physical presence there. Can you just update us on progress? Absolutely. I, I would say we're making good progress. I'm not going to put down a time frame yet, but we are moving in that direction. And I will just say that um, our our my my staff in the Libya external office, uh, temporarily resident in Tunis gets over to Libya at least once, if not several times a month. I went there myself in March and overnighted in Tripoli um, and had a, had a day in Benghazi as well. Um, the security conditions are never as quite solid as you think they are. We had a reflection of that over the weekend. Nonetheless, we think the security conditions are, are moving exactly in the direction where we could put a persistent presence. Uh, certainly lots of our European friends and regional partners are there, but. What I was gratified to see is I made the rounds and I went all over Tripoli and Benghazi to see sort of all the um, local chieftains, if you will, uh, as well as some people outside government. Um, what I was struck by was how well known and liked and, um, and uh, uh, my staff was uh, in, in, in Tripoli and Benghazi, uh, how much our, our uh, council was sought there is a hunger for us to be back, and I am eager to get us back on the ground. Uh, that's good news. Uh, I, I think you're right. We um, have enormous influence and leverage uh, there, made much easier by the uh, by a, a, an embassy reopening. So I uh, look forward to continuing to work with you on that. Uh, final question is this. Um, uh, Senator Cardin was asking questions about the expansion of the Abraham Accords. There's been plenty of open source reporting about early talks or early interest being expressed by Saudi Arabia in some normalization process. Those reports have included a list of requests that the Saudis have made of us as a condition of normalization. And I'm not asking you to get into the details of those talks today, undeniably, um, a normalization of relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel would be um, a pivotal and immensely positive development um, in many ways a sort of certification of a detente that has been underway for years but you know we should be actively engaged in trying to help make that happen one of the requests that have been reported in open source reporting is um, that the Saudis are seeking a 
defense guarantee from the United States, um, some kind of security guarantee. And, and I guess the only question I would ask right now is to simply confirm that any security or defense guarantee provided to Saudi Arabia um, would be submitted to Congress for ratification. That's obviously something that can't be done without congressional consent. You're absolutely right. And um, without getting into the details of private discussions to date, um, you know, we're very mindful of the of the sort of the right and left limits um, of, of what, you know, becomes a treaty versus a something else. Um, I, I, let me just offer a couple of comments, though. Um, there's a lot of misreporting and a lot of, a lot of hyperventilation in the press, a lot of excitable uh, rumen, I would say, in the press, especially in the Israeli press. I mean, they're just electric with the idea that Saudi Arabia might uh, take that step. And I would say, you know, uh, there's no question, that is an end goal for us, uh, that we bring Saudi Arabia and Israel together. Uh, we would love to bring the entire region in that direction, uh, but clearly Saudi Arabia is a real mover in that space. Uh, and, and I think it's fair to say that the Crown Prince has been very candid uh, with folks outside of government, uh, Americans and others, uh, that that is very much on his mind. Uh, he has a lot of other things in play, a lot of other balls in the air, um, mostly related to uh, uh, Vision 2030, but that is clearly something that he's got in mind as a, as a, a step he wants to move to. Um, so there, there are a lot of things in the mix in that space. And just as with other countries, um, we see plenty of space to get things done uh, even, even before normalization uh, were to be achieved. And those are in the realm of people to people, sports, educational, cultural, just a gradual opening up and relaxation of what heretofore were criminalized activities between Saudis and Israelis. Um, and of course, um, you know, we not only worked to get done uh, a, a really important piece, which was opening airspace for Israeli airliners, but we got the end piece opened as well, which is Oman's uh, airspace. So even with two countries that don't have formal relations, there's a lot of room there uh, to work. Um, appreciate that R response. Um, you know, full or partial security assurances um, should not be no, given and are I not given that. lately. Yes. Uh, and I think this committee would have a lot to say about whether the conduct of Saudi Arabia over the course of the last five to ten years has merited that um, kind of commitment, but I look forward to continuing to be in a discussion with you about this broader topic. Um, I think that's it for testimony. Uh, appreciate our colleagues on both sides of the aisle for being with us today, really important topic. We're going to keep the record open until the close of business Friday, and with that, this hearing is adjourned.